Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Japanese Hall. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors with Artisan Church. Grateful to be here on this fourth Sunday of Lent. And I don't know if you've noticed, but spring is springing. The cherry blossoms are blooming, and Easter is coming only three weeks away. It's crazy. And here we are. Um, first, I don't see here, but I wanted to thank Chelsea McKenzie. Last week, she hosted us in a sort of build a sermon exercise, otherwise known as Lectio Divina. And I, I thought she did such a fantastic job. And uh, this is kind of a cool thing, too, is we record those and put them on our website, on the podcast, so you can re-listen. Uh, and if you like to hear your voice and you shared something, then you can go to the podcast and listen to how it sounded out. Um, but such a great, uh, such a great morning, such a great practice to do as a community. Um, we don't always have to have one person up here giving a sermon. We can share the wisdom in the room and hear what the Spirit is doing amongst us. And I just love that. Also. I, I think this is, uh, it's hard for me to remember this, but because I come from a tradition of um, where uh, women pastors were plentiful. Women pastors and leaders, my mom is and was a pastor, and I was raised by a lot of strong women leaders in the church, but I forget that that's not always the case, that women are often suppressed in the church or not given opportunity to lead or to speak. And so I just want to take a moment just to thank our female leaders. Um, they are amazing. Um, I've listened, yes, Chelsea being one. And uh, from the lead team specifically, Chelsea and Carrie Reese, thank you. Um, our pastor of family and uh, uh, children formation is uh, Terry Boschman. And uh, also on that list are, are, are women preachers. Carrie is one of them again, Blythe Kingcroft, uh, Kathy Kwan has preached for us and just so grateful for a community that elevates. And Audrey, yes, our pastoral intern. Thank you. Audrey, a thousand apologies. Uh, and uh, today we're going to look at the prodigal son, so maybe, the, I don't know what the tie-in is there. There was no prepared joke, but that just sounded funny. Um, and I'm going to look at this picture with you, uh, if you don't mind. It's uh, Rembrandt. Uh, it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. A familiar painting. We've shown it here often. We even have a practice that we've done in neighborhood groups uh, where it's sort of a visio divina a divine looking or noticing of what is happening in a picture, something we can see not just lectio, not just hearing, but seeing. Um, it's written also by another former uh, female lead team member, Laura Rosengrim, and she wrote a whole practice of Visio Divina based on this one painting. Um, it was painted in uh, 1669 by the Dutch painter Rembrandt. Um, today, interestingly enough, the original is in Russia. Uh, it hangs in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, which I thought was 
very interesting, given the times we're in. One author said about this painting, in Rembrandt's return of the prodigal, the reckless son has returned home from the far country. This boy has been to hell and you can tell. He's clothed in dirty and torn rags in stark contrast to the luxurious robes of his father. He has the shaved head of a prisoner and his shoes have nearly disintegrated. The boy is kneeling in humility with his face buried in his father's chest. Rembrandt has worked with color and light in a way that draws our attention to the hands of the father as they rest tenderly upon his son. Strangely, the right hand is feminine and the left hand is masculine. Of course, this is not due to some deficiency in the skill of the painter. Rembrandt seems to want to capture both the fatherly and motherly nature of God's love. I love that. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I gave a message where we talked about the mother heart of God. Uh, today, we're gonna look at the father heart of God. And today, uh, together, I think, gives us a, a fuller picture of who God is. Um, this parable is filled with theological significance and meaning. It shows the heart of God towards sinners, uh, but overflows in gracious love. I can't help also, as Lauren was reading Psalm 32, I can't also help but hear some of the words in there. Uh, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Um, later in the passage, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Oh, I don't know about you. I don't know if it's a lack of sleep on my part, but I'm excited this morning. <laughs> Mostly because you get, there's a, what's that? Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I have funny things that happen when I, when I have a lack of sleep, but one of the things I'm feeling is excitement today, and partly because it's such a generative text. It's very familiar, and so you may have already done the work of, of mining out lots of meaning for yourself and what implications it brings, uh, but we're going to take a look at it again today, hopefully with fresh eyes and ears and hearts. Henry Nouwen, who wrote a book uh, reflecting on this one painting, uh, it was said that he stood in front of this painting for eight hours, soaked it in, and uh, eventually wrote this book uh, called The Return of the Prodigal, based on this painting. And he said, Rembrandt's painting is the whole of humanity returning to God, the summary of the history of our salvation. And Rembrandt's isn't the only depiction of the prodigal son. I had fun doing this, you could do this this week too, but Google uh, the prodigal son art. Uh, from church stained glass windows to sculptures, um, other cultures have depicted this. Uh, the next one is a Japanese painting. Kind of hard to make up, but the, I think it's the prodigal son on the horse with his head slanted. Uh, of course, lots of modern art, painting and mixed media, drawings, sketches. 
Um, and even pop culture, there's references, a jazz album, a TV show, and, uh, and this. <laughs> uh, and I, I, the, the one that struck me most profoundly was this next one. I was just so confused. It, it really kind of offended me. It was weird. Like, is this Steve Martin, Eugene Levy, and Tom Petty? Uh, like a, a reenactment? I, I don't know. So I'll just put that before you to reflect on. Uh, but no, let's go back to Rembrandt. That's better. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, too, I know there's some artisan sermon doodlers in the house. Chris and Bree. Do you guys sit together on purpose so you can kind of compare doodles? Anyone else like to doodle during the sermon? Oh, I would love to see some doodles uh, from this sermon, maybe in the prodigal. Uh, but why, I, I'm wondering, why is it so popular? Why has it resonated with so many people across time and cultures? I, I think partly is because it clearly shows us, and this is kind of a form of an outline for the sermon today, the heart of the gospel Redemption and forgiveness, the radical welcome of God in Jesus. Uh, it shows us God's nature, and it shows us our nature. Um, the next slide is a, a portion of our table liturgy, which we do every week. And uh, it's so easy to become robotic and kind of just go through the motions as we say these words. But they are powerful words. Just read with me here. Uh, the gospel is the good news that God our Father, the creator out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin and death and to renew all things through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. I think it's okay to start breathing a little heavier or to, to, to raise our volume a little bit when we say these words. Um, and the prodigal son gives us a picture of what these words are doing and saying, and what real redemption looks like. In Luke 15, 24, uh, near the end, the middle of the, the passage, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Redemption, saving, renewal, this leads to celebration. Once, what once was dead, is now alive. And the return of this younger son was cause for great celebration because he really screwed up. He dishonored his family, he dishonored himself, he dishonored God. And I think part of the reason this story resonates so much is because we can find a bit of ourselves in the prodigal. That we, at times, are like him. Or like Romans says, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are prone to wander, we miss the mark, we take the destructive path, or as one author said, we vandalize shalom. We succumb to what Francis Bufford calls the human propensity to F things up. Spufford said, it's our active inclination to break stuff, Stuff here, including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's. 
as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. The human propensity to F things up. Tish Harrison Warren, this is a picture of her. She is a American Anglican priest. Uh, she talks a little bit in an article she wrote about the misconceptions about sin. She says, I've grown up in a Baptist church hearing about how Jesus died for our sins. But it seemed that sin was the breaking of certain rules, drinking too much, sleeping around, lying, murder, and stealing. She continues, I came to understand sin as something more fundamental than rule breaking, more subtle and under the hood of my consciousness. It was the ways I would casually manipulate people to get my way. It was a hidden but obnoxious need for approval. It was that part of me that could not rejoice in a friend's big award or accomplishment, even as some other part told her, congratulations. Another place she wrote, it can seem gentler and kinder to think of human beings as basically good, our intuitions basically correct, and our motives basically pure. But then we run into the hard facts of greed, genocide, abuse, and even mundane selfishness, impatience, arrogance, or resentment in our own heart. The human propensity, or uh, HPTFTU, is what I like to say. Jesus calls it sin. And in a, in a story that he told uh, about a paralyzed man who came through the roof, some friends uh, lowered him there because he had a need. They thought his need was to be healed. He couldn't walk. What is the first thing that Jesus pronounces to this man that is lowered on a mat down to the ground? He says, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? I came here because I can't walk. The problem is not my sin. The problem is I can't walk. And Jesus said, actually, the problem is your heart. And then he healed him. One theologian said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an, art, an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was wealth or health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. This is why every week we come to the table and we say these words. And again, I'll put them up here. With the red background and the white letters, we acknowledge our sinfulness in thought, word, and deed. The things we have done and left undone. We cannot save ourselves. We say this also with the whole community here. Week in, week out. That we've broken stuff, like Spufford says, including other people and myself with my HPTF, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We're also invited in this liturgy, this gathering of uh, the saints to pass the peace to those around us, to extend mercy and forgiveness, the same that we've received.
And we say things like, we trust Christ to be our savior and redeemer, the one who lived for us, died for a sin, and rose again. To, uh, rose again. And Lent this season is traditionally a season of preparation for Easter where we focus on these things. We focus on our sin and repentance. And the call is to return to our good Father, to confess, to repent, to receive the radical welcome of God through Jesus, and to take a new path. And the Father's response in the story is just incredible. First, waiting. If you read the story, you notice that he sees the figure from a distance. I had an experience like this this morning with Randy. Randy and I came into the Japanese hall at the same time. I was coming from this block and Randy was coming to this block. And I noticed it was Randy because the way you walked in your hat and you had your, uh, your uh, water bottle or your tea, your coffee cup, yeah. And uh, so I knew it was Randy and I kind of just waited for Randy to come so we could greet each other. This father, when he saw a faint glimmer of him, what did he do? He ran toward him. Now, I didn't do this with Randy. Maybe I should have, or you should have done that to me. But he ran to him. And I don't want to get into all the historical things, but this was profoundly foolish for a Middle, Middle Eastern man to do at the time, to gather up his robes and run. A humiliating act. And not just waiting for his son and running toward his son, but kissing his son lavishing love all over him. And not just that, but interrupting his son. His son, had, the son, if you read the, the passage, he was preparing a forgiveness speech. Said, I'm coming to the Father, I'm gonna say sorry for this and this and this. And then the plan is to ask for, like maybe I could just work with the other workers. And the Father doesn't even let him get there. He interrupts him, it's so cool. Uh, he interrupts him with this lavishing love welcoming and restoring him, setting the place on fire with a party. Like, not literally, but you know, like a really, a really good party. What he didn't do, notice, he didn't focus on the sins of the son. He didn't judge or condemn or ask, what did you do with your money? Did you get any STDs? Are you ready to be better? If you agree to do better, then I will give you, I'll let you back into the home. Or have you changed enough to warrant my acceptance? It was, as Christian prayed this morning, the Father's kindness that led to repentance. And this is really, really, really cool that it's the third of three parables that Jesus tells in response to the Pharisees and teachers of the law all about things that were lost and were found, all about celebrating those lost things being found, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and here the lost son. And Luke, through this trilogy of parables, is saying something about the nature and character of God that he pursues us. He searches and seeks for us. He runs toward us. And to add to the list, a couple of weeks ago, the picture of the mother hen, he is motherly also and nurturing and protective and safe. So one conclusion is uh, Richard Rohr here, our sense of disconnection is only 
an illusion. Nothing human can stop the flow of divine love. We cannot undo the internal pattern, even by our worst sin. Amen. Amen. That's good news. No wonder the sinners of the day wanted to hang out with Jesus, because he's saying things like this. He's not focusing on sins. He's loving, lavishing, running toward, pursuing. Romans 8, Paul gets a, a glimpse of this. For I am convinced, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Oh, I hope you do believe that. The truth is sometimes we get, I don't know what it is, we don't believe that. We don't believe that God just loves us. Why? I do it too. And we could end the story right here, this is awesome. Prodigal son returns to the party, end, tithable, but there's another part to this story. Some say it's the whole point of the story, part two, the elder son. And it's important to remember that we're reading a story right now about Jesus telling another story. So there's a story within a story. Uh, and we have to ask questions like, why was Jesus telling this story? And to whom was he telling this story? The beginning of the chapter gives us a glimpse into that. 15, one to three. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus again. Because he, he, the, the message he's giving is actual good news. Of course they're gathering around him. But the Pharisees now and the teachers of the law muttered, they're so freaking good at muttering. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Ha! Then Jesus told them this parable and actually the trilogy of parables. And because we don't really get a sense of often like what the encounter was like, Jesus telling that story and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I'm, I'm gonna take a, 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 a step of boldness here and uh, I'm gonna call my friend Rebecca to come up here and we're gonna do a dramatic reading of Luke 15, 11 to 32. Here. Yes. Now, Rebecca is a real actor. I am not. It's church skit time. Okay, so Rebecca will be playing the part of Jesus, obviously. I will be playing the part of the Pharisees and the, uh, and the teachers of the law. And this isn't going to be good. Just, to, just a, a heads up. This is, that's not the whole point of this. The point is to get a feel for and kind of a picture of what it would have been like for Jesus to tell the story. And I'll represent an over-exaggerated version of the Pharisees and teachers of the law hearing this story after I'm like, Jesus hanging out with sinners? What's up, buddy? And go. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. What? 
So he divided his... Sorry, I gotta get my voice right. That sounded English. No offense, Carrie. What? That's preposterous! I'm shocked. What? What? So, he divided his property between them. No way. No, he didn't. That's impossible. No one does that in this day and time and age that we're in. Are you done? <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. <laughs> Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Loser. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. <laughs> so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Ew. Oh, that's gross. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were what? eating, but no one gave him anything. Oh, I mean, Jesus, do you know what you're saying? That's a Jewish man feeding with pigs. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Yeah, that's a good plan, but it's not going to work. Let's see what happens here. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, what? threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What? I keep the, saying what. What? I'm shocked. That's me coming shock. So what? The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Why would he do that? Bring the fattened calf. The fattened and kill calf? It. The fattened calf? Let's have a feast and oh celebrate. Oh my goodness. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Who cares? <laughs> so they began to celebrate. Wow. What? <laughs> Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Yeah, finally, someone with some sense in the story. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Obviously. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. Yes. And never disobeyed your orders. Yes, right. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so exactly. I could celebrate with my friends. Yes. 
But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Obviously, over-exaggerating to prove a point, but this story would have sounded ridiculous and over the top. From the son asking to receive his inheritance early, the Jewish man eating with pigs, the running, the celebrating, and the older son is pissed. What the heck? 28, the older brother became angry and refused to enter the celebration. Refused to enter the celebration. So his father went out. And again, it's like a mini, this is, I don't know if you caught this, it's like a mini prodigal son here. The father went to him. I don't know if he ran or walked, but he went to him. Uh, Jesus is saying this older son is as guilty as sin as the younger brother. He pursues him and he seeks him out, goes to him. And the older son, rightly so, is like, I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. As soon as he said those things, he missed it. He thought that the main thing was about working and following orders, not disobeying and not sinning. He totally missed it. And the Pharisees, I think, would have seen this too. Keeping the law, following orders, obeying, not sinning, is not the main agenda here. They were guilty, the Pharisees and the older son, and we are, were guilty of the sin of complacency. Complacency, that word, comes from the Latin word complacentia, which means to please. At least the younger brother did something. At least, you, you know, it wasn't healthy, of course, it was destructive, but he explored those searchings and longings, tried to live his life to the fullest. And we're not different, we're not that different. We can lose sight of the goal too. As Henry now and again reflects on the Rembrandt and this story, he says, there are many elder sons and elder daughters who are lost while still at home. And it is this lostness characterized by judgment and condemnation, anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy that is so pernicious and so damaging to the human heart. Often we think about lostness in terms of actions that are quite visible. The lostness of the elder son is much harder to identify. A dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly, there becomes not glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person. Uh, someone gave me this example of a, someone picking up garbage uh, with a poker stick, you know, kind of head down, focused on trash, where's the trash? 
Now imagine someone like this picking up garbage at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And they never looked up to enjoy the view. They never sat at a sunset and saw the colors shift in the canyon. They were too focused on this because they thought this was the thing. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, go to church. I'm gonna do this thing, read my Bible. No, I'm not saying these things are bad. Don't, don't misconstrue me. They can become the point though. They can become the focus instead of a gracious, loving God. Look up and see the beauty and majesty of who God is. What if our Christian life is more than just not sinning? <laughs> Romans 3, again, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yes, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And the father's response to the older son, verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found because this is what it's about, the redemption of those who return, who come back, who confess. I wonder if this morning we can receive as we come to the table again, as we go through the words of the table liturgy as we do weekly, if we can receive the invitation of uh, the radical welcome of God through Christ and think of ways to extend that radical welcome to others and maybe even including yourself. Some questions for reflection as we come to the table today. How have you been like the younger brother? How have you succumbed to your uh, HPTFTU? What do you need to repent of? How have you been like the older brother? How have you given into the lie of complacency?